Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance, and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Lisa Schneider. Lisa and I met when she was Chief Digital Officer at Merriam-Webster, and we were lucky enough to run SEO split tests together. These days, she's a fractional chief product officer and product strategy consultant. She's currently working on a just-out-of-stealth fintech startup called Singo, which will bridge the gap between people's estate plan and the actual execution, which strikes me as a really important mission. Lisa is one of the best people I know at articulating an organization's mission and crafting a product vision to match. And I also want to quiz her about her, in her own words, irrational love of the English language. Lisa, thank you for joining me. Really excited to have this conversation today. It's great just to get to catch up again after so many years. And you've been doing some really interesting work. You're doing fractional CPO work now. And we'll probably get onto some of that and hear a little bit more about that. But I'm actually just going to start diving straight into some specifics. So I, I mentioned to you previously, I listened to your appearance on another podcast, and you told a story on that show about a time when you came into a role in a product role and were handed a kind of basically complete feature or your release that hadn't been shown to editorial stakeholders. And I could kind of hear the facial expression on the podcast. You're like, oh, what do you mean they haven't seen it? And I thought this just summed up so much about leadership and management and the intersection of product and, and some bits of, I mean, this isn't an SEO story, but it intersects with that. So I just love to hear a bit about this story. How did that go? How did you handle that situation? Well, first of all, it's great to see you too. And thank you for having me here. Yeah, that is a great story. I think that that does sum up so many things. You know, I came into Merriam-Webster and it was clearly an established company when I got there. Just to be clear, they'd been around for about 170 years already and were sort of a brand with a lot of trust and a lot of authority but they really hadn't been digital first. They were online and they were very prescient. They put the dictionary online, I think in like 1996, if I remember correctly. Good thinking. So that was really smart. And speaking of SEO, that was great for SEO, right? Because they were an authoritative, trusted brand that had free content online very early. Google was pretty happy with that. But beyond doing that, they really hadn't thought about being digital first. They really didn't have a product development practice. They really had lucked into SEO. And so anything that they did for SEO was sort of super, I would say, like top line. And, you know, the phrase better lucky than good. (laughs) So, So they had done really well. And I think about the time they brought me in, they brought me in because they realized that they needed to do things a little bit differently and needed to pivot the organization to be digital first. And so I think it wasn't anything sort of deliberate, right? And it wasn't even bad leadership. I think it was just a lack of understanding of how product development sort of optimally works, where if you are going to create something, you need to have input from all of the stakeholders early on. And one of the things, and you you and I have talked about this before, that worked really well with Merriam-Webster was really thinking about the ecosystem, product, editorial, SEO, PR, 
all of those voices were heard in the room very early. But of course, when I first got there, that wasn't the case. And so, you know, being tasked as the person to go show the editors this feature that had been created that was really around their content. And remember that Merriam-Webster's really led by editorial really means the lexicographers that are writing dictionary definitions. And so that remains a really core part because that is where that trust and authority comes from. And the editors, there were two sort of co-head editors. They had been at Merriam-Webster, well, for over 40 years. People thought they walked on water. That's incredible. Okay. These are like the premier experts in sort of the English language and in dictionary development, you know, in the country and probably sort of across the English speaking world, you know, rivaled by the OED, right? And that was it. And you're walking into your first week and it's like, please go show these folks uh, this thing we built. (laughs) So I think, you know, that was very clearly something that we wanted to change. And also, you know, change is hard. And you can't go barreling in. Uh, You certainly can't go barreling into an organization that has been pretty successful up until now doing things a certain way. And Merriam-Webster certainly had been very successful doing things a certain way and was sort of like very attached to their processes. So thinking about how do we make these changes? How do we bring people along? How do we explain the why behind what we want to do? So you can't go in saying, you know, okay, I'm here now, everything's different, here's how it's going to be done. You really have to ask those questions around, you know what, what do you think is working? What is not working? Here's a vision. Here's how I think we would get to that vision. Curious to hear if that resonates for you. What are your thoughts? And so when I was at Merriam-Webster, I would often be interviewed. And of course, because I worked at the dictionary, the question would be, what is your favorite word? And people would expect, you know, something really obscure so I could show off my, you know, very extensive vocabulary. Erudite, yeah. And they would always be surprised because I would say my favorite word is why. And sort of that leadership and that change management shift to me really does boil down to understanding people's why and making your why clear, right? It's not just I'm the boss, do what I say. It really is explaining that context, not necessarily in a way of browbeating people you know, into agreement, but of explaining what the motivations are, what our goal is. So sort of in that same discussion with the editors outside of that feature, coming back to SEO, there was a real disconnect between sort of what that means. And I'm sure you've heard this before, right? There are a lot of editors that have had a tendency to respond with, oh, so we're writing for robots now. Yep, heard that before. I've heard this more than once and I've heard it in more than one job. So, you know, that was not unusual and really explaining the why, which is, you know, we have this new mission, which is to help people understand and use language better. Don't you want them to find it, right? The why is not that we're writing for robots, right? The why is the mechanism of how people will find us, you know, is SEO. And so therefore we want people to find us. And that just changes the mindset a little bit, right? Or to say, hey, here are the top, you know, five or seven things on my list. Show me the top five or seven things on your list. Do we have overlap? Is there a Venn diagram there? So there was. So it was like, okay, let's start with those. Let's start with those things that we have shared in common. I like that. Yeah. So those were some of the ways of approaching that situation and starting 
to change it so that we were in alignment from the beginning and started to be able to hear the voices of all the people that frankly could make things better Mm. from the get-go. And it sounds like they were maybe not a secret weapon, but certainly a kind of key core advantage, right? These folks who are global experts. A hundred percent. And it's not only that you want them on your side, but actually they differentiate you from anybody else who can write a definition of a word on the internet. And yeah, that's kind of a a big deal. So what was the end of that story? How did that particular feature go down when you finally got to show it to them? Look, the truth is that the culture was, they knew they were seeing it late. They knew there wasn't much to be done about it. It really was almost like a fake process of, you know, if there's anything terribly wrong or a red flag, you know, like a glaring error, then we'll change it. But otherwise, it really was more like an FYI. And so it was what it was. So it's more about looking for the opportunity to do this better in future. That's right. Still, must have been quite a, a scary experience. You mentioned the mission there. And this is one of the things that I have been from afar, from a distance, like most impressed by your leadership. And I think it comes from your love of stories and your love of words as well, but the wordsmithing to get to get the actual words right. But that movement to define you know, what is the mission of a dictionary <laughs> was really interesting to me. So I, I, firstly, I'd love for the listeners to hear that story in your words. But then I've got some kind of deeper questions about how you work to connect that to more like business goals and, you know, joining the dots between the mission and the commercials, I guess. Yeah. Well, it really is foundational work. And I think what happens sometimes is it gets the same reaction as, as this idea of soft skills. Mm-hmm. Another bugbear. And you'll see I'm sort of on record all over the place. <laughs> saying we're going to have to stop calling them soft skills, right? Because they're very, very critical. And this foundational work is very, very critical. So the Merriam-Webster story is great, and I'll tell it, but it's also really critical to the work that I'm doing now. And so often when I come in to organizations, one of the things I see is that there really is a strategic gap. And what happens is it makes the subsequent conversations more difficult, more fraught, more subject to what I'll loosely call the hippo, which is the highest paid person's opinion, but it doesn't have to be literal, right? It could be the squeakiest wheel, the person that interrupts the most, right? But it's the loudest voice in the room instead of really tying back to strategy. So it's really important. So at Merriam-Webster, you know, in addition to saying, okay, we're going to change processes, right? We'll involve stakeholders earlier. We want to be really thoughtful and hear from everybody. But I also came in and said, we're going to do all sorts of new things, like write different kinds of content and be on social media. And usually what happens is you go on a podcast or a conference and you say, okay, you know, I had this great idea. And then we won eight Webby Awards and I was on such and such a list. And that leaves out the middle part where people look at you and go, yeah, I don't really know about that. <laughs> you know? yeah, we're going to do what now? <laughs> we're going to do what? Like, why would we want to do that? Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that the task of what we did, which was being really great at writing definitions in a way that was very academically rigorous, right? There are sort of rules and there has to be evidence. And, and I used to joke, we've been data-driven for over 150 years, but that's not a mission, right? That is a thing that we do. It's not a mission. But because Merriam-Webster had been around for so long, it really didn't have a mission. And so what seemed obvious to me was in fact not obvious. 
And that is part of that storytelling and leadership and communication is it seems obvious to you, you have to make it really clear and compelling to the people that are going to be involved. And if, if they don't buy it, by the way, you might be wrong. And so I wrote a two-part mission statement. And the first part was to propagate our irrational love of the English language. And irrational is because English is a hot mess, right? It doesn't make any sense and lots of exceptions to the rules, but we love it anyway. And the second part was to help people understand and use language better so they can better understand and communicate with the world around them. So I mentioned that those editors had been there for 40 years. They were not an anomaly. If you're a lexicographer and you're working at Merriam-Webster in the United States, where else do you want to go? Right. You're at the top of the tree. Right. That's it. And so people were there, you know, 20 years was not unusual. At some point, I had an editor, Peter Sokolovsky, who looked up and said, I have now spent more of my life at Merriam-Webster than not at Merriam-Webster. And he was like in his Mm -hmm. 40s. So why do people do that? Because they love language and they think that words matter and they think that communication is really important, right? And that language is the foundation of communication. So that mission statement did in fact resonate with everybody. And what clear missions do is they provide creative constraints in both ways, right? They make it a lot easier to say yes to things that fall in the mission. So if we're supposed to propagate our rational love of the English language, suddenly it makes sense to go out on Twitter and geek out about language in public. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yep. It also allows you to say no, because if something doesn't fit in that mission, then it's really easy to say, you know, this sounds fun. It's a cool idea. It's cool technology, but it doesn't fall in our mission. It doesn't accomplish either of these things. So actually, we're going to deprioritize that and say no. So that sort of foundational work is really important One of the organizations I'm working with now is a pre-launch fintech startup called Singo, Mm -hmm. which is super interesting. And when I joined the company, they also sort of didn't have that foundational work. So it was like, here's a problem we're going to solve. Here's a bunch of features. You know, we need to get them all in, right? Right. And remember, this is pre-launch MVP, Mm -hmm. right? We need to get them all in and we need to have content more. And it's sort of like, we need to do everything all at once. And our audience is potentially everybody, right? Here's a bunch of avatars and our audience is potentially everybody. And that is too wide. There's no creative constraints. You can't make decisions. You can't prioritize. So we did go through some competitive analysis and some workshops. I have specific frameworks that I use to sort of to help these out. And then you end up with we're trying to solve exactly this problem for exactly this person. Now we understand this feature does that. This feature is cool, could be something in the future, but we're not doing it now. And all of a sudden, those conversations are easy mm-hmm. and the answers are clear. And like, I'm oversimplifying a teeny bit, but relatively speaking, right, the conversations are easy, the answers are clear. And when you sit here and sort of talk about it, it sounds easy, but it isn't that easy to get that foundation in place and so many organizations skip it, you know? And that goes right to everything. So now this permeates to marketing, right to SEO. What does go-to-market look like? What does SEO look like? Sort of who are you targeting? Who are you writing for? You know, what are you optimizing for? Where do you want to be, right? All of that ties back to real clarity in your mission, vision, objectives, and strategy. And if you jump from, you know, here's kind of what we do to here's a bunch of features, how do we get them on the roadmap? You've missed that whole middle. It's always going to be a muddle. 
Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense. And I mean, the startup that you mentioned we on Twitter the other day with me, I can see that clarity coming through in the positioning and in the value proposition straight away and, and kind of can see how that works. I don't know if you want to talk about the specifics of that, you can if you like, but how did that process go? You know, you're coming into that not as a founder, right? I'm guessing there's some kind of opinionated folks around the table. You saw this as a top priority. How did you actually make that work? How did you make it happen? That's a great question. And that also goes to, I, I really lucked into a great team. And that also makes things easy. So for context, Singo is a platform to bridge the gap between your estate plan and its execution. And what that means for real people is you think, I thought this, I mean, I have, I have learned so much working mm-hmm. on this product that at least in the United States, if you have a will, then you're all set, right? I've protected my family. Yep. You've written down everything you want to have happen. Exactly. And so now I've protected my family. And what really happens is your executor, who's the person that you name to work with, you know, an estate attorney and, you know, the probate court to execute your will, has to scramble to figure all this stuff out and find where everything is. So as an example, if my sibling is my executor and I say everything is split equally between my two kids, what is everything? They have to go find my bank accounts my 401ks, my investment accounts, right? Any, anything else. Your Bitcoin. Right? That's my <laughs> Bitcoin. Anything else that I have, and they don't know where it is. Like what insurances are there? What is current? Yep. It actually is a nightmare. And I remember when the founders told me about this, reading an article about this woman that like she spent four months rifling through her mother's apartment, trying to sort all the papers, find everything and figure out what is what. It's even worse now because did you get any paper statements recently, Will, or did you go paperless? <laughs> did I and keep everything? Them? <laughs> right. right. So yeah. now someone's going to come to my house, rifle through my office, and find not much that's helpful. Yeah. So what ends up happening is it takes, on average, this is just average, right? This is not like any fancy anything. A year, 120 hours of effort, $8,500 in unexpected cost to close an estate. So this is like a nightmare, and it's a shock at the worst possible time because no one thinks about this. And I bet most executives are doing it for the first time. They're doing it for the first time, and they're doing it because they're a trusted friend or family member. They have no expertise in this, and it's overwhelming. And so our founder and CEO, Marcus Policino, went through this with his longtime friend and business partner and went looking for tools and realized there was nothing to help people through this. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to build that. And when they brought me in, it really was just the two of them and an outsourced dev shop that had started working. But even the things that I'm saying, they were all sort of known, but maybe not as clear. And so the idea of the core problem was there, but not really clearly delineated from other things that could happen in this space. Yeah. So I think they were trying to build a platform without a clear target audience because it was for everybody and with a lot of extraneous features as part of the MVP. And fortunately, they both have a very strong learning and growth mindset and sort of low ego. And so these are really such critical factors for good leadership because we were able to have conversations. And yeah, it took a little bit of time, but not an extraordinary amount of time to sort of talk through like, again, right? It's that, hmm, 
why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? What do we think about this? You know, I did some workshops for them on sort of like lean startup principles and product strategy, right? And sort of marketing and this, like, you know, okay, it can't be everyone. And so they were really open to those workshops and then to taking those workshops and saying, how do we apply this to the product that we're building to come up with that really clear, if it fits in that I'm helping the executor take care of the estate, that's sort of a yes. That's core mission. Right? That's core mission. And if it's something additional, then that's not core mission. So there are plenty of things we can think of that would be really interesting to do that are very closely adjacent, but we're really clear that that's not core mission and not MVP. And we also are really clear on an audience so that we are building for someone, right? With Mm. this person, right? With this cohort, does this look and feel like the kind of thing they would want to use? Does this have the functionality that they'd be looking for? Will they understand it? And so again, just makes what we're building now looks so different from what we were building before in a really great way. You can just see the power of that shift in the way the product looks and feels and works. Yeah, it feels so simple. And you actually make it quite easy when you look at the output. You're like, well, obviously, like, obviously, that's obviously, the, right. obviously, that's the mission of this organization. But yeah, there's some magic going in there. Maybe there's, there's a whole other conversation on the methodology of how you actually get to that. But I mentioned before, I was kind of interested to go actually the other way, kind of down into the business and into how you operationalize and how you run the business once you've got that in place. And specifically, one of the things that I kind of struggle with, honestly, at times, and I I think you might have a good perspective on, is you've got the mission, but now you're setting some goals. And it's really easy for those goals to become just very, very commercial, very much about revenue or sales or growth or whatever particular metric, profitability, whatever it turns out to be. And that obviously has less of a story associated with it. And you can, you can say that there is a story. You can say the story is this is so that we can achieve our mission or you know, whatever. But I often feel like that doesn't ring true for everyone. It doesn't ring true for the you know, 40-year tenured lexicographer. It doesn't ring true for the engineer who's interested in the technology that they're using to work on. So yeah, how have you done that? It's an and. It's about having that and. Look, ultimately, the goals are commercial. That's the reality. Yep. But the question is, how? How are we getting there? First of all, what are the indicators that we'll know that this is working and on track for that? So really understanding metrics and how users use your product, how users get to your product, how users convert to pay for your product, really clearly understanding what are the relevant metrics for you. And that's the other piece, right? That nuance and that customization so many people lean on sort of this very broad theory mm-hmm. and it's not well applicable. So the ability to sort of like cut through the theory to the why behind the theory, the theory is supposed to get us to this. If we do it here now in this instance, is it getting us to that? Because if it's not, the theory is great, but it's not working right here. So really, you know, understanding that and then saying, okay, so if I'm going to get to sort of commercial outcome, X. These are the indicators that would tell me that I'm getting there, right? This is how I might do product or or marketing or whatever it is to drive that. Is that how I would do it, right? Is that in line with the mission and the strategy? So it's the and. It's not I'm going to get to this number, do anything, right? Do anything to get there. And the other thing that happens 
with the commercial drive is if you're in, for example, like a B2B SaaS space, is you'll have feedback from customers or potential customers. And often what happens there is this, what I call stakeholder volleyball, right? Where the sales team comes in and says, oh, you know, Will said he'll buy if we had this, right? It sounds great, but he'll buy if we had this. So when can you build it? (laughs) Right? Boom, tossed over the net into product. When can you build it? And the problem with that conversation, of course, is first of all, you can end up with a completely Frankenstein product that your maintenance costs balloon, right? So, you know, the CFO is going to get stars in their eyes and say, oh, great, you know, this client's going to sign for a million dollars. We have to do this. But if nobody else wants that feature and now we have to maintain it and now we have to keep it interoperable with all the other Frankenstein features that we're doing that really is going to get very problematic and very expensive. And at the end of the day, by the way, they don't actually know that they want that feature. What they know is they have a problem that they want solved. So that goes back to that collaboration, right? When you're doing your product process, is that collaboration really has to be cross-functional. And by the way, I think like clients are really happy if a product person shows up and says, you know, I really care about you as a customer and I'm really interested in the problem that you're talking about. Can we talk about this problem a little more? Tell me exactly like what is going on, right? So what are you looking for? What are the blocks? What are your frustrations? What's working elsewhere? How are you doing this? And then it's up to the product team to A, think about what is actually the right solution for that problem and B, to actually have many of those conversations, find the through line and say, here is a feature that will solve a shared problem among a lot of customers or potential customers, now it's worth building this feature. And that ties back to the mission and objective, but will drive the commercial outcome. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Changing tack a little bit, but actually tying back to something else you, you mentioned earlier. So I, I've heard you rant before about the soft skills thing. And as someone who comes from the classically hard skills background, I mean, a, a math degree and a little bit of programming on the side, and I'm envious of the soft skills, but totally aligned with you that there shouldn't be any kind of hierarchy. I was curious, looking back through your career, whatever you want to call them, let's call them technical skills, have you found most useful to develop or, or have you most found that you've needed to work on? It doesn't need to be you know, like programming or whatever, you know, it could be finances or spreadsheets or whatever else. Was there anything that you felt like really helped push your career forwards that, that if someone has a background like yours in loving the arts, loving literature and, and so forth, that you feel like it would help them as they move to the executive or move towards the executive layer? Yeah, 100%. I would say there are two. So one is data literacy. Mm-hmm. It's really important to be able to look at and understand data, to understand what data matters, right? Because you can go down the rabbit hole, you can measure everything. That's not helpful if you're not getting actionable insights out of that measurement. So really understanding data and ultimately the skill is being able to tease stories out of data, right? Here's a data point here. They're not standing alone. So are you able to, again, I've used this word before, but sort of find the through line, right? What is the story that comes out of looking at a lot of data or different data points, understanding what's important, what's not important, and what is it telling you as a story? And actually, I have said this, you know, I was an English major. I think that finding sort of these, right, what do you do as an English major, right? I read a lot of books and then I write, you know, here's the theme in this book and whatever. But I think sort of finding themes and patterns in stories feels to me very adjacent to finding stories in data. Interesting. Right? And that is a really critical skill 
because you're right. The data-driven decision-making is sort of foundational, is the thing that's going to get you to those commercial outcomes. That's one thing. And the other is what you mentioned is that sort of financial literacy. If you want to move up, I love the idea of having independent contributor paths for you know any function. People who are just really good at that function, they don't necessarily want to be in management. But if you do want to be in management, be working at the strategic level, reporting to a CEO, presenting in front of boards, 100% you have to have strong financial literacy. And I say a lot of the time as a CPO, your new best friend should be the CFO. Yeah. How did you develop that? Did that just kind of come on the job? Did you do any kind of formal training? Did you have a mentor? How did you pick up the financial side of things? It it came on the job, right? Just immersing myself in it and also reading. So I didn't do anything. I didn't go sort of take a class and get certified in something. But, you know, you can find stuff out on the internet. And so, (laughs) you know, realizing that this is something that I do need to know about that goes back to the learning mindset, right? And, And just being curious and saying, oh, you know, A, this is sort of interesting and I need to understand it and I will be more effective as a leader if I understand it and more effective. And again, tying back, what am I seeing from a sort of the user side of product, tying it to the commercial side? It's not just like, oh, a dollar outcome. The more you understand sort of finances overall and specifically your organization's finances, the more you can really tie together your strategy in ways that make sense for the organization. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And actually it leads into an angle I was going to ask you about, which is, so you, you mentioned, it turns out you can learn stuff from reading. And I read a lot of nonfiction and that spans business type books, you know, frameworks for different things or whatever else it might be, as well as a lot of, I read a lot of biographies and a lot of, kind of history and that kind of thing. I know that you're about the stories. I don't remember ever seeing anybody asked, what would be your recommendations for novels that you think would really benefit people in their career. It doesn't have to be a direct, you know, like you're going to learn this fact that mm-hmm. helps you, you know, whatever. But all this stuff you're talking about, the, the contextualizing stories, understanding humans, leadership, any of those kind of things. Do, I, this is randomly putting you on the spot, but do, do you have any fiction recommendations? Well, I always have fiction recommendations. Well, but what I think is, and this is awesome because it's so not planned, but there's research that supports what you're saying. There is research mm-hmm. supporting that people who read novels are more empathetic, more understanding, right? Have context. I think you do learn a lot from reading novels about empathy, other people's perspective, storytelling, and all of that is helpful and relevant. In all kinds of books of life, I'm sure. And I think the other thing that I've said, and you, you might have heard me say this, is you know what you learn, you know, certainly as an English major reading stories written across, you know, hundreds of years is that human psychology hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing, I think, is you sort of learn a lot about human psychology from reading novels. And again, use your powers for good, not evil. But understanding human psychology is really important in product development and marketing and SEO because the technology are the tools. So we can get very distracted by like the technology, the shiny new things, right? I want to work. I mentioned big, I want to work on Bitcoin. I want to work on yep. this right? And listen, if you really want to learn that, it's fine. But you have to remember that the tools are a means to something. And if people are doing it right, it's something human. They're filling some psychological need or some practical need. And so those are the things that I think reading literature really supports. I recommended this book to someone the other day. And he said, oh, you're like the nth person to recommend this. But a gentleman in Moscow 
by immortals. I think it's recommended a lot because if, if I don't know you and I don't know sort of what you like, there are so many genres of books and so you sort of don't know what people like. Yeah, it's an impossible question, but yeah. I'm just curious if uh, it comes to your mind. I became a huge fan of Madeline Miller, who wrote a book called Circe and Song of Achilles. And they're mm-hmm. both just wonderful. And they're both retellings of these sort of ancient Greek myths with right. very modern twists in a modern voice and sort of thinking about the backstory and thinking about the psychology of the participants who are, are not usually, I guess you would say, today like centered. And so again, right, just storytelling, human psychology, emotion, empathy, all of that comes out. Love it. Thank you. Uh, sorry if that was a off-the-cuff sideline question. Tying back to, we've kind of geeked out on the word nerd side of things before, and we come at this from very different places, but have both ended up very interested, I think, in, in language and, and words and all those kind of things. And actually, I'm fascinated by that evolution of language. And I guess I have that irrational love of the English language you were talking about, but there's something that feels, I don't speak enough languages to really know, but it but does feel a bit different between languages of the way that English has grown from so many other languages it feels quite easy to understand you know, a, a quote-unquote poor speaker of English, right? somebody who's just learning, can make themselves understood surprisingly quickly, surprisingly easily. It's, it's quite a forgiving language in that respect. But to get to the point of being indistinguishable from a native speaker is so hard. So hard. <laughs> and you know, I, think, I, I don't know if it is unique in both of those ends, but it feels like it pushes the boundaries of both of those things. Like It's, it's surprisingly easy to be understood, and yet incredibly hard to appear yeah, like a native speaker. Yeah. I mean, so it is true that there are all of these sort of really hidden, there's something, I'm not, I'm not going to say this well, but there, there's something that goes around, you know, every couple of years, somebody discovers it and, and, and comes up and it's like this string of seven adjectives about a house, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's little yellow, there's like size, color, you know, condition, and there's a specific order of the adjectives that feels very natural for a native speaker of English. And most native speakers of English will put all the adjectives in the same order. Mm-hmm. But ask them why. <laughs> right? No rule that you learned in school. Just you'll put mm-hmm. all the adjectives in order. So for example, even if I said a little yellow house, that sounds right. If I said a yellow little house, it doesn't sound right. That's right. Yeah. Right? And native speakers of English will just kind of grok that and do it right. And if you're not mm-hmm. a native speaker, it's really not clear at all. You'd be like, can you tell me how I work this out? Uh, right. <laughs> is, there, is there a rule written down somewhere I can? It's like, no, there isn't. You're just supposed to know. Yeah. I've been really enjoying all these little versions. But I wanted to pull back to just make sure we did talk a brief little bit about SEO. This is not an SEO podcast, but most of the people I end up speaking to, I've overlapped with in some area of SEO and have some experience in those areas. And I'm particularly interested in the interface between SEO and the layers of management above it. And, and you can think of yourself on either side of that battery, right? So reporting to the board mm-hmm. or the C-suite or whether you've been being reported to by agencies or your team or, or anything else. I'm kind of curious about lessons you've learned over the years of how do you do that with SEO? What have you found valuable? It can be quite a challenging channel, right? Compared to the kind of money in, money out slot machine type channels. So yeah, just that's quite an open-ended question, but how have you found SEO reporting and SEO accountability? to work best. First of all, I'm going to agree that it is really hard to report up because it is a really sort of wonky channel. <laughs> it is a marathon, not a sprint. The rules change all the time. 
listen, there are always factors outside of our control, but I feel in SEO, there are many factors outside of your control that are unpredictable and, mm-hmm. and can change something sort of immediately. And so all of that combined makes it very difficult, right? What the board wants to know is, what are you going to do? When are you going to get it? What are the results going to be? And then did you get those results at the time that you said you would get them? And SEO doesn't really fit those (laughs) models really well at all. And so what I found to be most effective is not to try to get too much into the weeds and often to, I guess, sandbag a little bit. Like, I hate to say it, but I think sandbag Mm -hmm. a little bit. You know, you have a hypothesis and it might or might not be true in ways that are less predictable than other hypotheses that you have. And so sometimes sort of going back and saying, oh, we did a thing and here are the results is a lot better than saying we're going to do a thing and we think these will be the results. And your ability to do that depends in many ways on how much you're spending, right? You sort of can't do that if you have to spend a lot of money on a project, right? Or invest in teams to make that happen. So it depends on that. It also depends, and this goes back to though that tie-in of the and, right? Where we started with sort of the strategy and the commercial outcomes. Can you get that twofer, right? I'm going to do this thing that will be really good for users. And we think, and again, like we know it's an oversimplification and Google's like, oh, just do what's good for users and you'll be fine. It's completely not true. But if separately you think, oh, this could be really good for users and it will help with SEO, then you can sort of maybe focus on the user benefit side of it as a project, be a little cagier or broader about sort of the range of SEO outcome. And then you can talk about those afterwards once you've got them. Yeah. Okay. So I'll give some examples because is it right? I, I do. I think that's a really hard question because of all of those things. So we did a project at Merriam-Webster where we knew two things. One was that Google preferred sort of more recently updated content. That's pretty challenging for a dictionary. How often do definitions change? Not that often. And we knew that users really like example sentences, mm-hmm. right? So I read the definition, but what's really helpful is just to see it in action. Yep. And so, you know, we had some of those, you know, either, either written or culled from media. So we came up with an idea to create a product that scraped example sentences from the web. This was sort of really very carefully curated, right? Where we were scraping them from, you know, all respected sort of authoritative media from sort of a range of positions, from a range of geographies, you know, with some limited, you know, I don't want to say it was like 80,000 to 120,000 words. So, you know, a lot, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. And that we would sort of scrape those sentences and render them on the page as part of the example sentences. And then they would update periodically, we would scrape new sentences. This was a lot harder than it sounds, because again, English is a hot mess. And so there was like a lot of NLP, natural language processing and machine learning that was going on to understand, is this the sense of the word that is being defined here? Right. So if the word is bear, right, am I talking about a bear in the woods? Am I talking about bear a burden? Am I talking about bear a child? Right. These are three different senses of the word. How do we know that we're putting the right sentence in the right spot? So it really was like a very tricky sort of 
technical language problem. And it was a very complex product to build and to test. But once we had it, we did see a really big effect because these pages were being regularly updated and linked to, you know, the New York Times or the LA Times or whatever, you know, the Atlantic, whatever it was. So this was a big investment, right? I had to hire a computational linguist, (laughs) right? To do all this NLP and ML stuff. And it took time and it, it took lexicographers time to sort of like check these over sort of in that learning process and said, okay, we know that users like this, this is going to be part of a user-centered redesign of the definition pages that ask users what's most important to them, put those things at the top of the page, expand them. And so this will help with sort of engagement and referrals and that sort of thing. And we think it'll help SEO and sort of here's a range. And so it wasn't only... It's not pure SEO play. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we were able to get approval for that project to make that higher and to do that project. And it really performed you know, at the top of what we had hoped it would perform as, but there definitely was a lot of sort of surround sound and and bringing in other pieces of what effect this would have and how it would be useful to us in order to get that funded. It's really hard. You know, if you ask a board for money Mm -hmm. for something for an SEO project and say, it's going to be X, you really have to wean them off these short-term results, right? And you really have to just hammer home that this is a long-term play and that, you know, you have a hypothesis if you do, you know, these couple of things between them or one of them will get you to here, but it might take 12 to 18 months mm. by the time Google gets around to recognizing it and, and doing another sort of whichever update is going to impact the type <laughs> of thing that you're working on. And it's yeah. really hard, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to do an A-B test on a conversion landing page and see really quickly if I can get 5% more signups. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the best teams really lean into what the channel is and isn't. That, yeah. you know, we've talked about lots of things it isn't. But on the flip side, it is or it can be an investment. You know, you, you mentioned getting the dictionary online in 96 or whenever. You know, what was the payoff of that? You know, it's huge in you know, quote unquote free traffic, you know, where at least the marginal click is free. And thinking about it as an investment rather than as an expense is an angle that I've been hearing about from a few smart teams recently and potentially even accounting for it. I know, I know one team that literally depreciates their content, literally has yeah. a, you know, amortization line for, well, if we haven't updated this piece of content for 18 months, then it's going to be getting less traffic than it was at launch. That's right. Opportunity cost, right. So yeah. I do think with SEO, understanding the opportunity cost, right, if you don't keep up, it's not that if I do X, I will get Y more. It's that if I do X, I won't get Z less. Also, the opportunity cost is, yeah, the, right. the counterfactual yeah. is always huge. Yeah. yeah, so that's really huge. I was going to just finish up on, again, pulling a little thread from something you said there. So you talked about pitching for budget, mm-hmm. and that was kind of in the context, I guess, of pitching upwards. So you're, you're going to someone looking for sign-off. When somebody comes to you, what are you looking for? How are you evaluating the pitch? And you know, I guess this is probably not in the startup land where you're operating now, but thinking more in a kind of slightly more corporate environment where you know, there is money to spend. But somebody's coming to you with a substantial case and they have a reason for thinking it's a good idea. But what's most important to you? Are you looking for kind of confidence in the outcome? Are you looking for the size of the outcome? Are you looking for the story that goes with it? I mean, I'm guessing there's going to be a bit of and again, but how how do you think about it? Look, it is the and. And for sure, this comes from sort of that learning about finance, right? If I'm approving budget, it's not just like, oh, this sounds really interesting or fun to do, or I like you, or I trust you. It's really, you know, 
if I were pitching upward, what would I be asked? Yeah. I'm going to ask those same questions, right? Is this data-based, right? What is this based on? Do I agree with your analysis of the data? Do you sort of have reasonable expectations? What are they based on? You know, do you have a spread? One of the activities I like to do is the sort of like high media blow, right? Because everyone's like, we could get up to whatever. Okay, what if things don't go so well? I'm not talking about like, okay, you could always get zero. But like, if things don't go so well, like, what is your spread? Are we comfortable at the low end of the spread? And the high end is gravy, because otherwise, it's sort of the opposite of sandbagging, right? You're always going after the high end, and you don't always reach it. And then that can really depreciate confidence. So ultimately, even if I have this in my budget already, and it's just a matter of what I'm spending it on, and I'm approving it, I need to be prepared to defend my decision and explain my decision to a CEO, a CFO, or a board, right? We've chosen to work on these projects to meet this goal. You know, here's the backup. And so it's a great opportunity too to train and give exposure to the people who are reporting into you who are coming with these to train them to do that so that they're prepared as they get ready to step up into the role, right? Yeah. Whether you're leaving or they're leaving to go elsewhere, right? You're always looking to help people sort of step up in their learnings. And it's an opportunity to do that. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, I think a great place to finish. This has been really good fun. Thank you, Lisa, for conversation that ranged from literature to word definitions to finance. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me. It was super fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the business class lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend.